Hello and welcome. You are listening to The Refuge Podcast, and this is the third episode of a mini-series devoted to exploring policy issues and creating a bridge between people with lived experience, researchers, and policymakers. I'm your host, Wagdan Abdulmomin, and today our discussion will focus on belonging in the context of refugee youth and their families. What determines our sense of belonging to a community? How can we improve belonging? And what can we take away from research and community partner experiences? I wanted to read you a quote that I came across by philosopher Patricia Churchland. And she says, being engaged in some way for the good of the community, whatever that community is a factor in a meaningful life. We long to belong and belonging and caring anchors our sense of place in the universe. So we long to belong. And let's introduce our wonderful guests. First, we have Ali Diwali. He is a Canadian politician who was elected to the Nova Scotia House of Assembly in the 2021 Nova Scotia general election. He's originally from Somalia. Diwali came to Canada as a refugee from the Somalian Civil War and has worked for the Halifax Fire Department and was part of the diverse and inclusion team or was the diverse and inclusion officer there as well. So welcome, Ali. Thank you for having me. Next, we have Sherman Chan, who is the Director of Family Settlement Services at Mosaic in British Columbia. He holds a Master of Science in Applied Social Studies from the United Kingdom and is a registered social worker with over 30 years of experience in Canada, Hong Kong, the US and the UK. Welcome, Sherman. Hi. Dr. Nicole Ives who's an Associate Professor and Interim Director of Indigenous Access at McGill University School of Social Work in Montreal. Her research focuses on refugee and immigrant issues, particularly refugee settlement, sponsorship, and access to post-secondary education for refugee youth. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you all for joining us today. And as I mentioned, our theme is about belonging. Now, before we dive into suggestions and ideas, let's define belonging. It's one of those fuzzy concepts that we can all sort of identify subjectively, but not particularly have a fixed definition. So I'd like to go around this virtual Zoom table and ask about how you would understand or describe belonging. How about we start with Ali? How would you define belonging to a community? It's a great question, but I think it's fair to say it's a question I've been struggling myself since I left the place that I used to call home. And I haven't defined that question yet, but I really have the realization of uh, sometimes uh, it's not how you define something. It's how other people define you. So I'm a father of eight children and, you know, do I call home? where my children were born and raised? Do I call home where I was born and raised? Do I call home where I was uh, succeed my life and had a good life? So in other words, I think this is something that, that we have been shy away actually to dive on and to dig on. Who actually holds this belonging? Who has this title? Who can define this, uh, this term? To be honest, it's not really a question that I can answer either. I think it's a very subjective, as you were saying, concept, and it means different things for different people. From one of the you know definitions I, I like comes from author and podcaster and social worker, Brene Brown, who says that belonging is being somewhere where you want to be and they want you. I certainly can see that from an academic point of view, it can be thought of as a component of integration. But thinking about the people that I've spoken with and the research that I've done, a sense of belonging seems to be where you feel like home as they experience it, right? And so, for example, I was working with Bosnians in New Jersey and one of the people that I interviewed with, he described a sense of belonging, you could say, as what he thought of as feeling normal. This idea that 
when I look outside my window and I go outside my house, my neighbor says, oh, there's my neighbor and his name and not my neighbor, the refugee, but just my neighbor. And so it's this sense that even though it will never be the same context as home, it is that feeling that there is a normalcy about the day and in the ways in which your neighbors and others interact with you so you don't feel like you're an outsider. That's a great perspective. And how about you, Sherman, from the community partner's perspective too? Thank you. Um, for me, sense of belonging is a feeling. Sense of belonging is really looking at um, whether you feel you belong to the community, you belong to the workplace, or you belong to the neighborhood. From a service provider perspective, it's also interesting to see that in the past, when we work with governments and many community organizations, we emphasize a lot on welcoming community. It is how welcome we extend our hand to newcomers, to refugees, to permanent residents, immigrants, and, and people who doesn't look like here in Canada. Now, of course, when we look at how welcoming, we're looking at not just the attitude, but how prepared in terms of the infrastructure, how prepared is the government or the, uh, the people. I'm looking at creating jobs, looking at welcoming you to the neighborhood, to the library, and become part of the life. When we look at that, and we also look at it from a perspective, from a urban setting to a rural setting, and also from the first tier city to the second tier cities, is looking at the planning process to welcome and, and be able to really take newcomers into the community. So that is what we see is going on. Yeah, you touched upon something really very important here is that welcoming or uh, sort of preparing to be a place where people can define it as home is, is both an attitude of welcoming, but also of planning and preparing and having resources available. What are the factors that actually help newcomers and refugees feel a sense of belonging? What can be done to make them feel more belonging? And so like what you mentioned there, Sherman, about having jobs available, for example, let's take it around the table and perhaps explore not only just factors, but also perhaps even personal stories or stories in research that have defined for you what improves belonging. Before we go to that question, uh, I, I really like to go back to uh, the previous question. Preparing for uh, this uh, session, one of my assistants, she's a young lady, born in Canada, raised in Canada. And I asked the question of belonging. Her answer was, yeah, I belong here. Where else I should belong? I don't know anywhere else except here. But I asked her, that's how you feel. How other people see, see for you, how other people feel about you. And she said, uh, I feel that I don't belong here. The same person and get two different perspectives, two different answers. And she said, uh, even though that's how I feel, or sometimes because how people treat me, I feel I don't belong here. So what I take away from with her discussion was, in reality, what matters is not how you feel. It's how other people feel about you. So I really believe this question and this discussion should not be the question of the newcomers. This question should be in the Canadian public. And, and, and this is one of the reasons I'm actually interested in this discussion, because usually nobody actually interested to discuss actually these issues. And I think this will create this open door, this open discussion of people thinking about twice how they treat other people, that they feel 
they are not like them or they are not similar to them. And to ask these questions, what makes some person, this person is different than him or her. I come here as an adult. You know, I was not born in here. I was not raised here. But somebody who's actually never been anywhere else her life, but yet feel this way, it's because of the other people who created this environment, who created this mindset to segregate people. And that is what needs to be changed. Thank you. Any reflections from the group on this very thought-provoking idea? It is the stereotype of you belong to a certain group that you would never be able to change. And that is a purpose of you coming here because we need to fulfill some labor or some job, or that is you are coming here to help to build the Canadian economy. Yes, people are coming here to build just like anybody here, but building, you have to really looking at how we're going to make sure that they belong here, knowing that they could be also benefit from building the economy or Canada, looking at aging, looking at COVID-19, many of the essential jobs we have to fill with many immigrants and refugees. It's once they are here, how we are giving them opportunity to become permanent residents, how they are feeling that is together with everybody here to belong here, that they have a permanent residence, that Canada, that they can continue to build together with everybody. I think that is more like a policy question. That is more like a political question about who belongs to Canada. We look at dignity. We look at the, the commitment of people around the world that we want to build the world and we want to build Canada. I think, Ali, you brought up a really good point that I just wanted to piggyback on around belonging. And because while it is something that we want to foster, I myself am an immigrant. I'm originally from the United States, from New York City. It does depend on where you go, right? And that highlights, I think, Resettlement policy and refugee policy typically looks at someone who has come as a refugee. To a certain extent, it's a one-size-fits-all approach, but there are no one-size-fits-all people. And so where are refugees resettling, right? Because as you said, if you are resettling into a place where people who have been born there don't feel a sense of belonging, how is how do you foster a sense of belonging in newcomers? So I think that that's a really good point. Um, and particularly for policymakers, it's that understanding of the context in which they are resettling or settling refugees. To give a quick example, um, I'm on the board of Montreal City Mission. And one of the projects that we have is Camp Cosmos, which has been running for many years. and What's unique about Camp Cosmos is that it holds places and provides tuition-free spots for refugee children, so a, a summer camp, but it's also, it has spots for children from Montreal who have been born in Montreal. So you get this opportunity for children to interact, Refu children who have come as with refugee status, along with children who have been born in Montreal. So there starts to be, you know, engagement in a natural way. And it, it facilitates, I think, some sense of belonging in the children because they can, you know, play and interact in ways that are familiar to them in a new context. And, you know, in that way can also hopefully influence, you know, parents when children start showing them around and, you know, recognizing familiar places. But it is important, as you said, to not have the burden of the belonging on the people who have come as refugees. Actually, Nicole, if we could 
just stay on the topic of Camp Cosmos. So you just described that it's a summer camp for new families who landed in Montreal. What are some of the lessons learned or observations you made about belonging and what makes people feel a sense of belonging and what doesn't? What gets in the way of that? That's a good question. Some of the lessons learned, for example, were around language and ensuring that we had counselors who could speak the first languages of newcomer children. Mm -hmm. We were very aware of the need to have counselors who understood that they are working with children who have come as refugees. This may mean, not necessarily, but this may mean that they might be coming from refugee camps. They might be coming from situations where they've experienced trauma. So it was important for us to provide training for counselors so that they understood this and also to have people on call who were trained therapists who could respond to the needs of children if they were experiencing that trauma. The other lesson that we learned was the importance of engaging parents. So we have seen often within refugee research, particularly when children are going into institutional settings such as schools, they may acculturate quicker than their parents. So it was really important to provide opportunities for the children to engage with each other, but at the same time provide activities for parents to come and engage with their children and engage with each other. Because that increased the sense of familiarity that the parents then had, whether it was just with the Camp Cosmos location itself, from taking the metro or the bus to get there, it started to bring parents out of their shells as well. So just to summarize, one of the things that helps us is having a language or using language that the youth or the family uses or is comfortable with using. That helps develop a sense of guest connection and also belonging eventually. And then having sort of minded counseling or sort of uh, interactions that understand the background from where this youth is coming from and then also getting families involved. And that is a very astute point about that children may adapt very quickly, but parents are still taking time. And in addition to education, they also got work and other factors to manage. So having the whole family involved improves that. These are some great points to keep in mind. Any reflections from the team or group here about other factors that may help with belonging or factors that may hinder belonging as well? I can start um, briefly. Because we're talking about policy, we're talking about designing of program. In Canada, one thing that um, the sector or the settlement organization are keep um, talking to the government is the access of service. There are different immigration categories that will say you can get and you cannot get. So what we are saying is that even using this example, for some refugee claimants or temporary foreign workers, that they may not be eligible for certain services. So what we are really asking the government or a policymaker to consider is that don't just look at the immigration status in order for you to, to be available or be able to get service. It's looking at the needs, the rights of the people as a human being that they could access service for them. And to become a Canadian citizen or that they feel they are more belong to Canada. So basically expanding eligibility and looking at each family or as each person as a, as a person rather than, yes, you tick off the checkbox. So you're eligible or you're not. Okay. How about you, Ali? Very, very interesting uh, subject matter. Quite honest, for me, Nicole touches a very uh, important subject matter. This is also showing part of the dark history of Canada. Even though, as a newcomer, this country holds uh, one of the best welcoming immigration policies that you can ever imagine anywhere else in the world. And I don't think anybody will take away from that for Canada. Nevertheless, it's not a perfect place. So this particular subject matter that we're talking about, one of the most belonging 
any human being is the language. And we know the dark history of Canada for the indigenous people, the first nation of this land. And we see the result of that mindset and that perspective taking away people that they're the most precious of their life. And I'm using that term because, you know, sometimes people use this term, mother language. When you attach mother something, it means something. That's a very important. And we know also for the fact that so many nations that have a national language, but also have a so many languages that people speak, use their daily life, that interact each other, that use their, their life. So since Canada portrays this is a you know a multicultural nation, multi-language nation, because we don't speak only one language. That's the fact. But the question is which language we accepted and which one we don't accept. So I really believe if we want to create a true policy belonging, first of all, we need to adapt to allow people and to cherish people's language and to give space those language people to communicate, rightly so, to have a national language. Some of the things that actually makes people to withdraw their life is, to give you an example, if I come here as an adult, which I actually came here as an adult, I was the father of three children when I arrived here, but there were so many things in my early settlement, if I was given those very important information is through my language until I adopted the national language could have changed my life way better than I struggle. So I really believe the language is the key that gives people belonging, but also will give people a good start in their new adopted land. Mm -hmm. Really good point. And I wonder if I can expand a bit more and ask for what are some practicalities that would have made for you, for example, Ali, it easier to use your language? Are you referring to, for example, having services that are available in more languages, including the, your mother tongue, or being taught or having your children being able to be taught different language in school? You know, uh, I'm a part of uh, a party that is uh, an opposition party. And uh, one of my new role is emerging languages. And this is something that I'm actually advocating as an elected official, that in line what I'm saying here today, the value of languages. So uh, to answer your question, anything related to the medical need, if I was given my language, if I could have ways that I can express my own language to describe exactly what pain I have in terms of education, in terms of uh, training, same thing my own children, if they could have a program source after school or community service that will keep their inherit and their language. And sometimes you can ask those who provide, who are uh, newcomers uh, service providers, you'll see uh, children giving translation their parents mm -hmm. in a very, very difficult situation whether it could be a, a violence, whether it could be a human uh, catastrophe, let's say a fire, whatever you want to call. So this shows you how those adults are desperate to express their feeling and their condition. Imagine if that child was not there. Mm -hmm. if, imagine if this person didn't have a children. So you're saying things like interpretation services, community resources, or basically even in the medical world and the educational world to have opportunities for people to express themselves in their own language and be understood for that and be respected for that. Definitely, definitely. Can, can I add to that? Just thinking to the language is critical as well as, and, and language is a component of culture, right? So mm -hmm. the, this idea of having a cultural broker I think is very important in the education settings, in, in hospital settings, in social service settings, because you have, you can have interpretation, mm. but the 
person also needs to be able to understand the client's context, what the cultural context is. And if that's missing, then I think you're, you're only getting part of the issue. As you were saying, children end up doing a lot of translation for their parents. And sometimes, as you said, it can be very inappropriate what they're being asked. It also can interfere with family dynamics and cause power shifts within the family. But when you have cultural brokers, there's, some, there's someone who speaks the language as well as the cultural context. And it's also that context that they can help, for example, a social service provider or a medical provider know, okay, this is not an area where this person feels comfortable talking to you about, or this person would rather see someone who is of the same you know, cultural background or the same gender or other issues that may, that, that go beyond words. And that is an important investment. I can't stress that enough because one of the things that I was thinking about, you know, in preparing for this and thinking about belonging and thinking about policies related to belonging is what is, what is the purpose? What's the purpose of the policy? If you want to increase a sense of belonging, you have to do it holistically. And as you said, it's looking at the the receiving community as well as the newcomer. So that adequate preparation, I mean, that's priceless, really. So often, because there are people coming from places where we might not have seen that there's a conflict and it breaks out and people need to leave immediately, there can be little preparation. But engaging people who are already here from, from that community or knowledgeable about that community, reaching out to them is is critical. And if I may add to it, thank you. It's also looking at some employment practices that uh, many employers, they may not really see the added value or assets of having their employees have additional language. And I've seen many of the uh, banks or uh, commercial company, they are doing it. But I just wondering if there's anything that we can encourage any employers when you when they hire, they are looking for someone who have additional language that can really really expand their clientele and, and reaching out to the community or to their customers. Mm-hmm. That should be encouraged. Mm-hmm. Sherman, that's a good point. Actually, actually, you can see a lot of banks and a lot of uh, big companies competing the language, whether uh, translate uh, their uh, material, different languages, or actually bragging to say we have this many number of employees who speak this many languages. I really believe that the business community are picking up this in terms of financial incentive, but also I think the public service that also need to be encouraged to look at the benefit of, of multi-language. Thanks. Yes, I have seen it happening. I would encourage having it more, not just on the line level, looking at the management levels. Great. I mean, we've we've touched upon a lot of very pertinent points, talking about language and having that accessibility, but also cultural brokers, which are just beyond just language. It's about culture. It's about context. It's about also religion and various other things that are specific to a person's culture. And looking at at the whole, the idea of belonging as a holistic two-way process, not just my sense of belonging, but rather the community that's receiving me. Will they allow me to even feel a sense of belonging by how they they treat me or how they perceive me or how they think of me? Adequate preparation, employment practices that promote diversity, promote different languages. So it seems like we have touched upon a lot of things that, that really do bring us a little closer to experiencing a sense of belonging. And I think I do still want to stay around the idea of like what helps, but what hinders. And I think we need to come, and I think Ali, maybe you touched upon it, about discrimination and how discrimination can actually get in the way of belonging, even if services are provided, even if one can speak their own language, even if there are jobs in the community, but one experiencing a sense of otherness or discrimination. So I wanted to hear from the group 
about what some of their, you know, either experiences in their, basically, whether in research or in the community or at the policy making level or even at the personal level of how discrimination may hinder or may get in the way of belonging. One thing that popped into my head was thinking about belonging, again, looking at programs with children. So I was part of a project in the United States that looked at Head Start, which is an early childhood education program for children from families who have low incomes. And it was looking at collaboration with Refugee Resettlement, the ORR, Office of Refugee Resettlement, and their voluntary organizations who were doing resettlement, and looking at speaking across these silos, right? You had education and then you had resettlement. And one of the things that was interesting was, again, providing this education to the Head Start and early Head Start teachers who would go into homes. There were many Korean refugees being resettled in and around Syracuse, New York. And it was interesting to hear some of the the teachers, the early Head Start teachers, who were going into the homes to engage with the children. So in thinking about, you know, putting all this together with, you know, working with resettlement and having the resettlement office in a way serve as the cultural broker and work on the preparation side, because the early Head Start teachers were saying, you know, I was going into a home and I think that these are these are turning points where you can either create a sense of belonging or flip it and have the person feel very alienated. So the going into a family's home where the families from this particular ethnic group, they were all, for example, sitting on the floor and they were eating, you know, their meals on the floor. And that was, you know, what they were used to. And the early Head Start teacher coming in and saying, I, I don't know if I want to sit on the floor. And then they were also offering food. And, you know, there could be regulations like you can't accept food. But to not accept food in so many cultures can be extremely rude. So this idea of providing preparation for you want to build relationships. And if you want to create a sense of belonging for these families, you need to build relationships with them. You need to get to know them and you need to understand where they're coming from. You need to understand that it's not that they won't sit in a chair. Like some very obvious, you know, kind of reviews. And and it's okay for you to eat what they offer. You know, you can also say that you have allergies if that's the case. But there are some, some real opportunities for building relationships, which contributes to the sense of belonging. And if those are missed, I think then down the road, it makes belonging much more difficult. Mm -hmm. I mean, what I'm hearing is that we need to train service providers and those who are supporting others and educate them about the cultures that they're supposed to be connecting with and helping and supporting. So there's a role for training and education here as well. If I may say uh, one thing, I think uh, earlier uh, has been said, uh, this relationship to me, it's a one-way relationship rather than the natural two-way relationship. What I mean by that is those who came here already made an intentional belonging because they left where they belong and they made that decision, I'm going this place and I'm going this reasons. So I really believe, you know, the receiving end is the people who need to create this belonging and this welcoming. And the reason is because they are the one who created these differences, us and them. So I really like to encourage the mainstream Canadians to actually come forward and to engage the newcomers and to learn who they are, what they eat, what they speak, how they do things, rather than seeing, I don't want to sit on the floor. And, you know, I was not prepared to come here to eat. We are also newcomers. It's our job, actually, to educate people and to share people who we are, what matters to us, and why they are matter to us. And that's why, actually, I was, I was very interested for this discussion and, uh, and this research, because 
nobody speaks about this. Nobody talks about this. And most of the time, we as a newcomers, we just speak our difficulties, but we don't look for solutions. And this kind of setting, this kind of discussion is actually, that's where you create solutions. So I really believe we have obligation ourselves to make our condition better in the future. Thank you. And for sure, I'd like to add that there are a number of projects that I see is also important in engaging a refugee or immigrant youth to tell their own stories. And I've seen projects that they have refugee youth, they just come to Canada within six months. They are doing documentary projects using technology, they film, they video, and they present at public libraries. And it's really bringing the dialogue and also telling stories to those who don't understand their journey, particularly the refugee journey, and also, also looking at how they can contribute and, and how talented that they are. They are not many of the group types that they are coming here to, to take advantage of the Canadian hospitality. It is not they are here to contribute. And I've been working in the field a lot. I've seen so many people who contribute, they build, they volunteer, and they contribute a lot to the neighborhood and, and become a really, really good Canadian citizens. I think that is the narrative, the story that um, we really want to tell to the community. I just want to share with you a, a small story This I just saw yesterday online. I'm not sure if any of you know Tariq Haddad. He's a Syrian refugee who uh, landed uh, in Nova Scotia. He opened a company called uh, Peace by Chocolate. Uh, mm. it's, a, it's a well-known story. Somehow something took place in Alberta that was inappropriate. And he just comment. What he comment actually has nothing to do even uh, being Canadian. You know, somebody harassed somebody and he said, that's not okay. And he get the response, go back where you come from. You don't lecture us. But anyway, it was a very uh, disappointed to see this kind of discussions. And this gentleman is making contribution in Canada. He's creating a product. He's creating an uh, employment opportunity. Yet people see completely the opposite. Those are the things that we need to not to shy away. And we need to push back, even though, you know, it's not the majority of the Canadian who behave that way. But it's out there. Thanks for sharing, Ali and everyone, about your different perspectives on those things. And I think that our listeners or our intended audience today are you know, policymakers, uh, individuals who, who will be planning and implementing services and various other initiatives for refugee youth and refugee families and newcomers. And so this is a very, very relevant and important discussion we, we need to have. I mean, in a perfect world where we can create all these wonderful things that accessibility language and cultural brokers and, and other services, how would we be able to measure belonging? How would we be able to say, yes, we've improved in how in the initiatives for belonging? Is there a way to quantify it in any way? And take your time to think about this, because I I'm still fairly stumped. I know perhaps that basically some government policies use things like retention rates and uh, mobility in the country and, and employment rates and things like that. But from your perspectives, how can we quantify or measure the sense of belonging? It's not an easy way to measure, but I really believe everything there's a starting point. And I'm glad you're asking this question because this has never been asked before. So uh, to answer your question, the discussion has to start first. As long as, you know, we don't have the will to actually discuss this issue, we will not be able to make any position that we can actually measure belonging and how, and how to achieve that goal itself. And I have seen some community, they, they use the degree of social connections or social participation as one of the indicators of belonging because looking at 
how much the newcomer participates in neighborhood, in the um, social service acting, or become politicians, engage in um, committees. That is one way of looking at the degree of participation, but it's not a total picture. I think mm -hmm. that, that there are many other ways that uh, could look at it. I'm a qualitative researcher. <laughs> so the thought of quantifying belonging, I don't know. <laughs> because it is so unique to individuals, how they feel. I've looked at integration, which is defined in many different ways. There's one definition that's uh, created by uh, Michaela Hinia from York University uh, Center for Refugee Studies, where a sense of belonging is one of the subjective factors of integration. Um, another subjective factor being safety and security. There are other kind of less subjective, but it, it is still so individually based. and what someone needs will be different from what someone else maybe in their own family needs, let alone from their own ethnic group, let alone if they arrived at the same time, you know, in terms of arriving from a conflict. So it's, it's really hard to say, but I do think it is critical to think of what, again, what is the purpose of trying to create a sense of belonging? Because for, for those of us who look at integration, historically, it's actually been more about assimilation than integration. And so the goal, while they're, they're talking about integration, all, all the components around programs are basically targeting assimilation. So wanting the newcomer to give up their own cultural context and entirely embrace where they are. And so it is really important for the policymakers to think about what is their actual purpose. If it is integration, as we've spoken about earlier, it really requires a mutual accommodation that there, you know, there needs to be an investment in cultural brokers that it's not something that can be done on the cheap. It's not something that is only for volunteers. It is something that if you're making a a conscious choice to bring people and provide safety and security and refuge from persecution, you have to put in, it's an investment and it's a long-term investment. Just to quickly add that I've, I've looked at integration in the United States and Canada and in Scandinavia. And in the United States, it really is connected to their perspective on social welfare. In, in a sense that, okay, you've arrived, you know, we've, we've accepted you as refugees, now it's sink or swim, good luck. You see that in terms of how long their resettlement support is, right? 90 days or up to eight months for cash assistance, but the goal is to get people off assistance as soon as possible and get them working, which often mires them in low skill or no skill, low wage labor. You know, I've spoken to uh, people who have come as refugees who have said, you know, thanks a lot, but it seems like you've just brought me here to be low-wage labor. People need to be transparent about what resources they're offering. You know, we can all pat ourselves on the back and say that Canada is doing a great job and all resettlement countries are doing a great job. But if you're not willing to put in the investment and recognize the context that uh, refugees are coming from, you're doing them a disservice, and ultimately, you're doing us a disservice. Thank you. <laughs> Get down from my soapbox. Okay, thank you. <laughs> we are nearing the end of our episode today, but this is not the end of the discussion. I think this is just the beginning, and we've touched upon many things. First, we tried to define belonging, which proved to be challenging. And from different perspectives, from the community, from the personal and from the academic perspective, we tried to explore what are the factors that allow people to come closer to belonging, like language and cultural brokerage and engaging parents and factors like that. And we also touched upon the challenges 
and the societal challenges too of the receiving community. And then answering another fairly challenging question of quantifying or measuring belonging. So today has been an exploration of, of a fairly fuzzy and obscure topic that is, no matter how vague it is or fuzzy to define, is actually super core to our sense of humanness of being human beings in a society. So I'd like to wrap up today, but before we all go, I'd like a brief take-home message for our listeners who may be policymakers, but who may also be community partners, who may be researchers, who may be just the general public who are listening to this, or educators like teachers, for example, who want to be involved. So what are your take-home messages? And whoever wants to start can can go and then let's take it from there. One suggestion I have is to engage you, engage people with this experience. When I use the term engage, it's more like a meaningful participation, a meaningful engagement that is really listen. In the sector, in the community, there are, there are so many consultations either on the federal level, provincial level, or municipal level. You know that whether the people are really listening to you, where you know that people are really engaging you, or even with with stakeholders. I think that is the attitude that it's meaningful, really, really listen and engage the youth. Once people feel that you have that genuine attitude and receptiveness, you can really work together. On a big federal level or to a small neighborhood level, I think that's what I would say that is important. Thank you for that. How about you, Nicole? I would say to educate yourself. Educate yourself in terms of what the context is, whether you have to read first-person narratives I teach a course on, on working with refugees and I have this long, long book list and films. So if you can't actually meet people who have come as refugees, then it's another way to do it. But also to not be afraid to step out of your comfort zone and meet people, make relationships, build relationships. Action Refugee Montréal here in Montreal, they have a program, it's a twinning program, and they twin, they pair up refugee claimants, so asylum seekers, with people who have been in Montreal for at least, you know, a few years and know how to get around. And so it's an opportunity to get to know people one-on-one. -on -one. I also work with WUSC students, so World University Service Canada, collaborates with resettlement, with the IRCC, um, to bring in students who have lived in refugee camps. and get to know the students. I mean, I am thankful I'm on a campus and I can join them for holiday gatherings. I know that there are people who get involved by going to the airport and welcoming. It's to get out of your comfort zone and meet people. Once you get to know people, that naturally starts to break barriers down. But I think that there needs to be a willingness to be uncomfortable, but to try to build relationships. And that will address many components of belonging, I think. Thank you for that. And over to you, Ali. Quite honest, my message is, is very simple. This nation was built by newcomers, refugees. I will ask every single individual Canadian, just look back your history, how you got here, who got here first, how they got here. And I really believe what you see today is the continuation of creation of this land. And people need to realize that this nation will not survive without newcomers, in respect of which way they came, whether through education, as international students, economic path, refugee, and, and uh, those who are seeking safe. This nation was built by newcomers and will survive with newcomers. Because of that reason, I will encourage every single citizen of this nation to be welcoming 
as you being welcome your own ancestors, to be open mind as we claim as a Canadian, also as a nation, as we embrace as a, a multicultural nation. That will be my message, especially those who make decisions. I will also encourage uh, those who are uh, academia to pay attention to uh, this subject matter because most of the time we claim everything that we do based on facts. If those who are a position of education and educators don't invest in this particular issue, don't do enough research, we will not have the real fact. We will not have the truth. We will not have a better result in the future. It just popped into my head and I wanted to be able to include this because I also work with Indigenous students at McGill. And I think, you know, just thinking about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action to highlight for policymakers the call to action number 93, which calls on the government to create a better information kit for newcomers that talks about the histories of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples that includes residential schools so that there is a, again, this holistic understanding of, of where they've come in addition to, you know, creating a sense of belonging. I think it goes back to our discu earlier discussions about discrimination. So that's, that's an area where policymakers are, can be directly involved in terms of providing funding to create uh, better information about uh, Indigenous peoples here. Beautiful. Thank you very much, everybody. And if I could extract a few little quotes from each one take-home messages, engage youth, educate yourself and be willing to build relationships, be welcoming, open-minded, and embrace this multicultural nation. So with that, I want to thank everyone for being here today and sharing their wonderful perspectives. We look forward to the discussions that follow. Thank you very, very much.